0: Songleaders are funny people. Doug's a funny song leader. Doug's just a funny guy. I uh, did request that song specifically because of the second verse and how it ties in with what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, It's a difficult thing, you know, to follow Jeff Walling. And so... uh, we all should feel sorry for Doug, because he had to follow Jeff Walling. Um, but no, we, uh, we, some of you got that. Tonight, it is an even more difficult thing, because what I'm going to say to you will deeply offend you. It's got to. It did from the beginning. It has throughout most of time. It does today. We are on Sunday nights talking about training the twelve. And when we talk about training the twelve, what we're really getting at is the relationship which Jesus had with his apostles, the twelve. As he walked with them and taught them and guided them, his job was not only to teach them and train them, but to teach them and train them in a way where they could then teach and train others. Steve and I believe there are powerful lessons in those lessons which he gave to the twelve. And so on Sunday nights, our goal is to try to learn these lessons. To help us understand not only our own faith, but to help teach and train others as they grow in their faith. You may have heard the phrase before that perception is reality. That's a lie. Perception is not reality. Reality is reality. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, I was in my neighborhood. I had a, scan of, a can of spray paint, and I was spraying the side of a wall. And several people saw me do this. It was on the side of a pretty major street there on South Pawnee. And some people were honking, and, and, and one lady stopped and called the police officers. No lie. Red and blue comes up, I'm still painting away. Unrepentant. Perception was, this guy was committing a crime, a misdemeanor. He was spray painting graffiti. Reality was, I was attempting to cover up graffiti, which had been put on that wall. And I had a couple of cans of of the color that matched the color of the wall. And so when the officer came up, he asked what I was doing, I explained, I showed him the color and all of that, and he said, "Oh, thank you for doing that. Appreciate you being a good citizen." And then he kindly went over to the lady who was sitting on the curb in, or next to the curb in her car, and she had the one who's called this in, and explained what the situation was. You see, her perception? She thought that was the reality, but, but the truth is, we've got to really question our perceptions and our assumptions. As much as possible with that thought in mind, let's talk about this verse from Luke chapter 9 verses 23 through 25. And in truth, this verse has kind of been the basis for this series of three lessons we are talking about specifically uh, this idea in three lessons of denying yourself. Taking up your cross and following me. The context of that is Luke chapter 9, verses 23 through 25. This is Luke's recording of the account of Peter's confession of Christ. You know, Jesus says, who do you say I am? And so on and so forth. And then he says to Peter, don't tell anyone about this. And he goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to, to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? Luke does not record this, but uh, in the same event, Matthew chapter 16 Peter makes the confession, and then in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Matthew records this little insight. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he, catch this, must be killed. And on the third day, be raised to life. Peter, ever the well-meaning one, verse 22, took him aside and began to rebuke him. Rebuking Jesus, that says something about a guy. That says Peter didn't have any self-esteem issues. He says, never, Lord. Which is Seems like an oxymoronic statement. I I don't think you can really say never, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Jesus just turns it right on to me. He said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I think Matthew's Recording of this interaction it helps us understand the difference between perception and reality. My question is, what is your perception of the cross? You see, it's been tainted because ever since the cross, it totally turned around the meaning of what that symbol was all about. If I ask You know, just took the camera out on the street and asked a bunch of people, what does the cross mean to you? I might get answers like it means uh, religion. It's about remembering someone. Tonight on the way to work, I noticed there on May's Road, there's a little cross and some flowers. Perhaps someone died in a car accident. They set that up as a memorial. To some, it's a symbol of faith. To others, it's a symbol of hope. Uh, To many, it's a symbol of spirituality. Christianity. Where do you see the cross most often? Church buildings. We've got a couple of them in here. Roadside memorials, as we've already said. You'll see people occasionally wearing it as jewelry. You might see it on a bumper sticker. You might even see it on some advertising saying, you can trust us. A Christian business. But before 33 AD or thereabouts, that, that symbol meant a whole lot different, had much different connotation for the people of that time. It is a tremendously offensive symbol to people of that time. Certainly to the apostles, when Jesus talked about being crucified, being killed, being taking a, ask, and then calling them to take up their cross, that wasn't a symbol of faith, spirituality, hope, Christianity, a message of good things. No, it was very, very offensive. We can almost understand Peter... And his response to Jesus, never, Lord. The cross is for criminals and the worst kind of people. The cross is an absolute place where the lowest of the low go to be put up in a public way. That symbol caused a stumbling block for them, and it would later down the road as well. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul, if you. Fancy to turn in your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, is where I'm going to read. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who believe, to those who are perishing, excuse me. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? If you were to take uh, some of the best teachers, some of the wisest people, some of the greatest philosophers of today or of any age they would look at the cross not as a message of hope and redemption and salvation, but as a message of foolishness leaned upon by weak people who have foolishly believed the words of a thousand, two thousand year old book. That's what they would say about the cross. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, for since... In the wisdom of the world, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. A cross was an absolutely unambiguous, public, shameful death meant to do one thing, to send a message. To send, I mean, the Romans perfected crucifixion in such a way that when you mention the cross, whether you are a Roman citizen or a Jewish citizen or any other citizen under Rome's authority... Everyone, when they heard of a cross, their instantaneous reaction would be, it was done in such a public way, in such a cruel way, in such an unmerciful way, that when Jesus called his disciples to it, they could barely hold on to the thought. You've probably read or heard it, uh, descriptions of the crucifixions and how the nails were put into the flesh and how long the body would hang and how it would die and it would crush the chest and they would die from either the heart, literally exploding from within inside the chest cavity or they would die from asphyxia- asphyxiation. The, it is absolutely, unarguably the most cruel form of death ever invented. Turn to Luke chapter 18. When we talk about perception, the thing that breaks us out of our incorrect perception is proper perspective. Give it enough time. uh, Allow enough truth to come into the situation. You know, the, the woman who called the police thought what she saw was true, but she needed more to the story. That's perspective. So perspective helps deeply in understanding and appreciating the message of the cross. But we're in Luke chapter 18, verses 31 through 34. And here, (coughs) Luke uh, writes these words. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. I don't know if they had read Isaiah's account of the suffering Savior. I don't know if they had stopped and thought about Psalm chapter 22. I don't know if they had understood what Jesus was saying. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. You see, in the, the disciples' mind... They were following the guy who's going to conquer the Gentiles. We're not going to, we're not going to bow to Caesar anymore. <laughs> no way. We're with the guy who will overcome Rome or any other kingdom. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. Verse 34, probably one of the largest understatements of Luke's account. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them. They did not know what he was talking about. I'm not sure we fully grasp what Jesus called them to, what Jesus calls us to. Their perspective. If you want to write some of these down, I made a small list. They saw the cross as a sign of humiliation. And no one there was, you know, uh, your family didn't brag that your son had been crucified on a cross. It was the utmost shame. It was uh, shameful to the people of any um, Nation, it was absolutely something that just completely tore you apart, not just physically, but the message of what it was saying about this person, Philippians chapter two verses eight through ten. Paul writes, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. And notice here what he says: even death. On a cross. Think about how you want to die. Have you made your funeral plans yet? I bet it was probably exactly everything the opposite of what a crucifixion was all about. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Their perspective was humiliation. Our perspective, we look at it as a sign of hope. They saw it as a, as a tool of justice. And of course, we look at the cross as Christians as somewhat unjust, but I'm going to say it's, it's also a symbol of grace. We think about that verse. He was nailed to the cross. Was it his cross or was it my cross? He took the punishment that we deserved, in essence. The criminals to his right and his left were in full agreement. Well, at least one of them was that we are getting what we deserve. But this guy in the middle, uh uh. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Your salvation came at the price of Golgotha, of lots of blood being poured out. Number three, they saw it as a place of torture, and we see it as a place of healing. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. And then he quotes Isaiah, and he says, by his wounds you have been healed. This will be easier if I go through the list on the PowerPoint, won't it? Number four is a place, they saw it as a place of punishment. We saw it where we can have peace with God. From Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There was no covenant that was ever enacted without a blood sacrifice. And the Jewish people understood that. Gentiles have a little bit of a harder time. But when they they saw the cross, Jesus was transforming and giving them perspective on what it meant. Number five, they saw it a place of of transgression, a place for those who who had defied Caesar, who had gone against the government, who had uh, absolutely rebelled against all authority. And we see it as a place of forgiveness. Colossians 2, verse 14, Having canceled the charge of of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. There are some people who love to delve into Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, and just cling on to the things which they don't struggle with. But if you want to cling to the old law, you've got a problem. Because at some point, the old law convicts you, indebts you, and you owe something. And it's a price you can't pay. And so what he did, does at the cross is he nails that law to the cross and he pays the debt in full. The last three words were, that Jesus said were, it is finished. In the Greek, that's one word, "telesta," which is totally, fully, completely paid. It's a beautiful uh, picture, but we have to have perspective to see it. The twelve had a picture of defeat, but we have a picture of victory. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Colossians 2.15. You see, that Friday looked very dark to the twelve. And if we don't have any perspective, it still looks dark to us. But Sunday came, and defeat changed to victory. And the last one, and there are probably lots more, but these are just the ones that I could think of. They thought only of death. There was no way to ignore the symbol of death. When Jesus called them to a cross, this is what they, this is why Peter said, never, Lord. He he couldn't see that. He didn't want that. Do you? I'm not calling him for martyrdom here, but I'm saying if we look more deeply at what the cross means, it's calling us to a death. And we must be willing to have the perspective that anything that we put to death in ourselves is a far, far, far step away from whatever we will gain in eternity. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, speaking on resurrection, he says, When the perishable has clothed, been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. Well, what do we say? I mean, that's all very interesting. Yes, they had a different perspective. Yes, they couldn't have fully understood. Yes, we have the advantage of seeing, you know, in hindsight. But what does that mean? What, what purpose for us then do we have? Dietrich Bonhoeffer and I think I'll put the quote here on your handout, famously said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And if you know the story of Dietrich, uh, I don't have time to go into it, but, but he had the opportunity to save his own life, and he didn't. He went back to do what he believed God called him to do in Germany and died as a result of it and paid the ultimate price And when Christ calls us in the same way, may not call us to a physical death. I mean, you're called to that anyway. Adam and Eve brought that. But you're going to be called to a far deeper, far more significant death. And it will be hard. Number one, we have to die to ourself. Um, Before he can live in us, We must die to us. We no longer live for what we want. That's what happened this morning when Kate Tandy came and put on her Lord. She's saying, from this point forward, for the rest of my life, He's in charge. He's Lord. He's the master. He's the ruler. And He comes first. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul wrote, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This makes, I think, the, the cross gives so much light to this scripture. Follow this. Romans chapter 12, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Number two, the purpose of the cross is to bring us to a point where we're willing to die to our standing. Paul went through this Deeply and personally when he said, listen, do I have any reason to brag? Oh, yeah. As far as righteousness, I, I pretty much kept all the rules. I was a zealot, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, yeah. I, if, I, if anyone could be as good as, a human, as, as good can be, I was it. But he said, all that is, is refuse, is just garbage. Um, I wanted to do an illustration, and so how I, I thought, well, you know, because we really can't to relate to being Hebrew of Hebrews and of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. Do you know the reason that I think most often I hear if I ask a person about their, their faith that they don't come to Christ is because they think they're good enough. I mean, if, if you ask, if you're a Christian, no. And, well, I'm, but I'm basically, what? A good person. Yeah. And so um, we have this, this kind of, these little blocks that we build up in our own mind. And by the way, this happens to religious people too, if we're not careful. We get in this trap. Okay. I, I'm doing enough good things. Um, but you take, you know, either side of that fence and we've got these little blocks that we build up. And we so, say, well, you know, since I'm speaking to very religious people, I mean, Sunday night crowd, you say, well, I, I go to church. I go to church Sunday morning, and I go to church Sunday night. Sometimes I'm even here on Wednesday. You know, I, I'm pretty, uh, pretty holy. I'm a good standing person. I have a good family. People, people love me and respect me and admire me. I'm a giving person. I give lots of charities and I give here at church. I say my prayers. Sometimes I say prayers for other people. I am full of many good projects. My standing in the community is second to none. I am... You know, I mean, I've got Jesus, but I've got all of this other stuff too. Makes us feel pretty good. What the cross does is just buries all that. If you come to the cross, you understand that your good works don't matter. It's only, only, only by His Grace. If heaven's not a gift, ain't none of us getting in. And that's a beautiful thing about the cross. Now don't misunderstand this illustration. I'm not saying that when you're in Christ that you won't do good things. I'm not saying that any of these things are bad. But we stop placing our hope in them. Any good that happens in you individually or in us as a body happens only as a result of his grace. You'll never do enough good to impress God, to make him love you anymore. And the cross, that's what that is all about. When Paul says, I've been crucified and everything about me has been crucified to the world, Paul didn't struggle with pornography and drugs, Understand. Paul is a good guy, a religious guy, and he threw down all his good works. So we too have put our faith in Christ. We're back in Galatians 2. That we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves among the sinners... Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. I have been crucified. This is the verse you know. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness Uh, forgive us for if righteousness could be gained through the law then Christ died for nothing the Christ the cross of Christ jumps right in the middle of everything that you have reason to brag over and just levels the ground completely sinner and saint alike stand equal and number three it causes us Calls us to die to sin. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. His death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The, Christ, the cross of Christ calls us to die to ourself, die to any standing that we might claim, any good works that we might boast about, and thirdly, to die to any sin that reigns within us. How do then do we practice daily cross? This is why I chose the verse from Luke, because Luke specifically says, take up your cross daily. And I've heard this said many times over the years in churches, that when someone's going through a rough time, they'll say, well, we all have our cross to bear. <laughs> That's... That, no, that's not what it's about. That is, that is poor, poor theology. If having troubles mean you're, means you're taking up the cross, then there are atheists and people who reject God outright who still take up their cross. Taking up your cross does not mean just dealing with life's problems or having difficulties. That's not what it's about. It's about dying to yourself. Uh, we're going to take a look at two last scriptures, and, and four of those are going to be in the book of John. Let's go there. <clears throat> John chapter 11 is the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. You might think that a story on uh, raising a dead guy would be against sort of the idea of talking about the cross, which is all about dying. But what I want to point out here is, is very interesting story that John his account gives of what I would call um, not doubting Thomas but daring Thomas because he shows some amazing faith. John chapter eleven, verses eleven through sixteen. He says, After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. They've already called, they said the one you love is sick. You know, Mary and Martha, call for him. Come on, Jesus. And it was like two miles away. I mean, he could have been there very quickly, even even just walking. But he delayed. Why did he delay? Because he he needed a death to happen before we could know a resurrection. If Lazarus didn't die, we wouldn't be talking about it. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. That's pretty harsh. This is his good friend. He's dead, and I'm actually glad I wasn't there. Because if I had been there, he wouldn't have died. I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Now look at verse 16. Highlight it, circle it, think about it, chew on it. What Thomas should be known for saying. Then Thomas also called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. He's saying, Lazarus is dead. Let's see, if Jesus is going to wake him up, I want to know what that's about. What a powerful, often overlooked phrase. If you're going to daily cross bear, you've got to start by dying to yourself. You've got to stop thinking about what you want. You have to be willing to crucify everything that you believe you have rights to. You have to be willing to lay down all of your plans and dreams and hopes and aspirations. When Jesus called the apostles, they were but fishermen and tax collectors. And they had very different plans than Jesus did for them. And when we go on to read the stories of the apostles... They live very different lives because of his calling. But that never would have happened unless and until they decided they were going to leave their nets behind, they were going to leave the tax collector's booth behind and follow him. Number two, and we'll finish with this one, you have to daily multiply for him. We're in John chapter 12 now, just one chapter over. Jesus replied, this is verse 23, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He had a different perspective on the cross, didn't he? Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies... It remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who While well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. I was trying to think, how can we break out of the paradigm of thinking of the cross as a religious symbol instead of a symbol of death? And God gave me a vision. Actually, it was a fly in my house. Stupid flies, I hate them. If only Noah had just left in the ark, we wouldn't be dealing with that. But this fly and it is in our bedroom, and so I closed the door. And I'm just, I'm in Chuck Norris mode. And I've got one tool, right? Fly swatter. Now, in order for me to kill the fly, the fly has to stop. But there was something going on, I tell you this. In that room, that fly knew somehow that it was me and him. And he wasn't going to stop. From a fly's perspective, this only means one thing. If Jesus were a fly, he would call them to the fly's He would call them to the instrument of their death. It only has one meaning. We are called to die. Not because that earns us anything more than what Jesus' death did. It's just the price he says. You want to follow me? Come and die. Lay your life down. The only way to activate the seed is to kill it. Think of it from the seed's perspective. The seed is buried in the ground. It's covered in darkness. It's maybe drowned with water. It's waterboarded or something. It, it, it's just the most horrific kind of death you can imagine. But the farmer sees the seed in a different way. He doesn't see the buried and the drowning and the darkness and the death. He sees the result, the breaking of the seed, the opening of the seed, the breaking through the soil, the new life, the fruit that comes, the purpose that it gives, the new life that it brings. And that's what Jesus says of us as well. We must die to ourselves, and as we do, we multiply then for him. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gospel, and a Sunday night crowd has no problem with that. A Sunday night crowd, however, will have more difficulty with, as everyone does, the call, the meaning of the cross. Death must always precede resurrection. If there is no death, there can be no new life. And so I ask you tonight if you have not responded to the gospel call, are you ready to die? Because only by dying, only by dying can you find life. It is the call of the cross. And it's not just a one-time, one-moment deal. It's a daily taking up the cross and crucifying myself and living then for him. If you need to respond, come and die. If you have any need, come. Our elders await you, or I'll await you, as we stand and sing.